This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, my name is Chris Lambert. On this channel, we talk Kanye West. And today we're going to be talking, yay, getting kicked off of both Instagram and Twitter, uh, which was surprising. I don't think he's ever been kicked off of two platforms in a 24-hour period before, and we're still currently in the space of him not having access as far as I'm aware. So we'll see what happens, but I wanted to go over what got him suspended as well as talking about cancel culture because it's something that he brought up and I found an interesting article. So we're going to get into some of the the details of this. Um, it starts off with uh, this text message that Ye sent to Diddy. So this was something that he posted to Instagram, uh, a series of these uh, text messages. And he said, this ain't a game. I'm going to use you as an example to show the Jewish people that told you to call me that no one can threaten or influence me. So this was something that he had talked about a few times on Instagram, uh, not as directly as that, but he had made claims that people in the aftermath of the fashion show were being critical of him at the behest of uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. Uh, this group, uh, Bernard Arnault, the one that he's in charge of. And he's one of the richest people in the entire world. And Ye declared him his new Drake, right? Uh, this is the guy I'm up against. This is the one I'm competing with. He's my peer. He's who I'm going toe to toe with. And in the aftermath of some of the criticisms he was receiving to his show, he was saying that the Gabriella, um, fashion editor that said negative things was doing so at the behest of LVMH and that Tremaine Emery because Louis Vuitton owns Supreme was doing that at the behest of the company like it wasn't their actual genuine opinion rather something that they were told to do so when Diddy reaches out to him about the shirt and was like I don't like you with this WLM shirt like I don't think this should be a thing and they start fighting over it he's like you know, I know that it was these Jewish people that told you to call me rather than Diddy himself just feeling like I want to talk with him about this or I don't like this. Same thing with Gabriella, same thing with Tremaine and Gigi Hadid. It, it's everybody that's been critical. He's kind of said that you have to be doing this because of the pressure from above. So this was uh, seemingly the mention that got him kicked off of Instagram. Uh, and there were some people that were concerned like with this being like, what's he mean <laughs> by Jewish people that told him? Because uh, that's one of the like growing issues in terms of like the conspiracy theories that Jewish people run the world, that they are in charge of everything and it's kind of like pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And that's used a lot in negative ways as just like a general, like this group is doing bad things. So when people hear like a broader, like Jewish people are controlling this, it kind of sends up some 
uh, alarms, <laughs> uh, whether or not like he's being like intentionally trying to be anti-Semitic or not, or realizing what he's doing. And you can see that he commented, Jesus is Jew, like below it. Um, almost seemingly aware that what he's saying here is going to come off in a negative way and saying like, you know, Jesus is Jewish. I'm not trying to be negative towards Jewish people in general, you know, like I love Jesus. Jesus was Jewish, that kind of thing, kind of covering his bases. Uh, and then once he was kicked off Instagram, he took to Twitter and he had initially called out Mark Zuckerberg, um, which do we have the tweets? for kicking him off of Instagram. So he posted a hat, right? And that was his first post in a long time, uh, almost two years. And then called out Mark Zuckerberg saying like, how are you gonna kick me off of Instagram? I uh, used to be my guy. And <laughs> then posted something from Shervin, uh, the VC that became one of the vice presidents of Yeezy uh, about this revolution that's going on in Iran. And then had this post here that got him in hot water that said, I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going DEFCON 3, which means DEFCON uh, 3 military term for like the levels of defense you need to be at due to enemy attack, like DEFCON 1, DEFCON 2, DEFCON 3. I think it goes all the way up to like four or five. And the higher the number, the more severe it is. Uh, but it came out DEFCON. And it looks like he's putting spaces to separate like a new thought. He uses voice recorder a lot. So I imagine it's something like it's a thought space space and then giving a, a new thought like voice to text, not voice recorder, but voice to text, uh, speech to text. So you have people that are interpreting it as I'm going death con three on Jewish people, or you have people that are interpreting it as when I wake up, I'm going to go on the defensive, offensive, like I'm going to defend myself and then following up with on Jewish people since the uh, theory was that he was suspended from Instagram for this text about Jewish people. So he's saying on Jewish people, like on the topic. The funny thing is I actually can't be anti-Semitic uh, because black people are actually Jew. Also, you guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone who ever opposes your agenda. So trying to not be anti-Semitic while kind of <laughs> still doing so. And, uh, you know, even if you disallow this as like he's trying to say that he's going to go on the offensive against Jewish people and just say like he's separate thoughts and also trying to just address the idea of talking about Jewish people. Um, it's still like this group attack when not every Jewish person has been the one that <laughs> opposes him or has tried to stop him or do anything like that. So this led to a lot of hot water. And what he's saying here about not being able to be anti-Semitic in case people don't know, there's a, a whole thing, black Hebrew Israelites that started over a hundred years ago and has been building in um, like followers over the years. And it's essentially the idea that one of the tribes of Israel was in Africa. 
and that they're these descendants of like the tribes of Israel, the children of God that are African in descent, like black in descent. And that's been popularized through different groups over the decades, through different leaders. Uh, Kendrick has been tied to this as Kendrick's cousin is a Hebrew Israelite, and Kendrick featured some of the lyrics in Damn, I believe it was. So in talk about this recently over the last 24 hours, a lot of people have made the connection to Kendrick. Uh, Farrakhan is also one of the like big names in this movement who are the real children of Israel. Um, so Farrakhan said a lot about it. And we know that Jay Electronica is big on Farrakhan and even uses this speech who are the real children of Israel in the opening of his album, The Overwhelming of... Or, uh, written testimony in the opening song, The Overwhelming Events. So uh, there's a lot of artists and athletes in the black community that have listened to Farrakhan, that have heard these concepts and ideas and lean that way. Or I don't know if they fully invest in the concept the way that maybe Jay Electronica does, but they're at least like aware of it and thinking about it. So Ye just kind of followed up on that uh but typically as it says here uh there tends to be a separation between it like the main jewish communities don't really acknowledge uh the claims of the black hebrew israelites and the black hebrew israelites don't often consider themselves to be jewish in the same way like they're descendants of israel but they're not like jewish in that way which is like their own accounts. It's something that Farrakhan says as well. So there's still like a degree of separation, even if you're <laughs> even if you're like using that as the foundation that doesn't quite explain uh, that idea that Ye was putting out there. But then the very next tweet that he had was, uh, who do you think created cancel culture? Uh, which seems to be implying like Jewish people did, which uh, got me thinking and got me curious uh, leading to this article here, the long and tortured history of cancel culture. So we're going to talk about this. Some of you may just want to like click out of the video now or probably already have clicked out of the video, but I thought this was interesting since Ye brought up like the invention of cancel culture, like where did it come from? Honestly, I don't think it gets addressed. I scanned over this article, but I didn't like go into it, but I think in America, one of the biggest instances that I can think of is the uh, the Red Scare back in, what was it, like the 40s, 50s, 60s, McCarthyism, when they were saying like, oh, if you have any socialist leanings, if you have uh, any like communist leanings, you, we're going to essentially like dox you and ruin your career. There were people like in Hollywood, in entertainment that were like jailed for suspicion of having like communist sympathies and that was by like not <laughs> like jewish people or liberal people that was very much like basic uh american governments and like good american practice at that point like if you're interested in socialism or communism in that period in the height of world war ii and post-world war ii like how dare you and that was like a huge thing. Like people were telling on their neighbors, like people were reporting names to the governments and it wasn't always like done well. Sometimes people were just doing it out of spite. Like, I don't like my neighbor. I'm going to report them for being a communist. So that was like a huge thing. That's like a big part of American history that has nothing to do with like 
race or uh, ethnicity or anything like that, but just like you can kind of find a root in cancel culture, like widespread American cancel culture in that. But we're going to dive into this. So this is by Lagaya Michan. In the early 21st century, a decade into the experiment of the public internet, which was introduced in 1991, and with Facebook and Twitter not yet glimmers of data on the horizon, a new phrase slipped into Chinese slang, Renro Susu, literally translated as human flesh search. Wow. The wording was meant to be whimsical, suggesting the human-powered equivalent of what were then fairly novel computer search engines. In English, the nuances are lost. No zombie infection was intended. A request would go out for Wang Min, web citizens, or in this case, the more intimate Wang Yu, web friends, internet users sharing a common passion or cause, to come together as a kind of ad hoc detective agency in order to ferret out information about objects and figures of interest. It was just an outlet for fandom, but soon attention turned towards supposed wrongdoers, those thought to exhibit moral deficiency from a low-level government official spotted flashing a designer watch far above his pay grade, hinting at corruption, to more horrifically, a woman in a crush video, a fringe genre of erotica that traffics in animal cruelty, Jesus, wielding stilettos to stomp a kitten. Once these offenders were identified and their personal details exposed online, they were hounded, verbally flogged, and effectively expelled from the community. To a Western observer, this was human flesh indeed, a pound of it, exacted. Media coverage in the West framed Renru Susu as an exotic phenomenon, almost unheard of outside China. It couldn't happen here. When the New York Times ran a feature on it in 2010, one commenter wrote, I am surprised by the intensity of the searches, and I think this is an Eastern trait. Most people in the West can't be bothered. We are too individualistic and well-served by existing mechanisms. Even though English already had its own word, doxing, for such online revelations with roots in 1990s computer hacker discussion boards. Ironically enough, uh, Candace Owens, one of the first big pushes she did in the political world is she wanted to start a... um, a website that was essentially a database of online trolls and bullies connecting their profiles to their real identities and the things that they said. So it was a a doxing thing. So if you said something mean about somebody on Twitter anonymously behind an account, they would find out who you were, put your information in the system, and it would be available for everybody to see. She did a Kickstarter for it and everything. And people on the right were horrified by it and started calling her out. And at the time, she was more left-leaning and running in left circles. And they actually like really called her out and did it come to her defense, did if <laughs> didn't like stand by her at all. And it was just like eight months later, 10 months later, after that kind of failed, that she made her video of coming out as a conservative and kind of going down that route. But um, it's just funny talking about like cancel culture and then yay is with somebody that wanted to start what was essentially a website dedicated to doxing slash canceling. For such online revelations with roots in the 1990s computer discussion, Weiwei Shen, a founding editor of Tsinghuao China Law Review, made a similar if more subtle argument in a 2016 essay noting that the human flesh search was a grassroots effort and thus far more likely to arise in collectivist China as opposed to go-it-alone America. 
But this is the American way now. We call it cancel culture. So much has been written about cancel culture in the past year that wariness sits in just reading the words. What it is, what to call it, and whether it even exists are all in dispute. The term is shambolically applied to incidents both online and off that range from vigilante justice to hostile debate to stalking, intimidation, and harassment. Any of the following might qualify. Outcries last summer over cell phone video footage of a white tech executive yelling uh, expletives at a Filipino-American family at a restaurant in California. He reportedly resigned from his company. Speculations that a pop star's father was secretly a CIA agent and thus an accomplice to colonialism and genocide. Editors at the New York Times and New York Review of Books stepping down after running controversial pieces that provoked dissent from their own staff. The suspension of a white professor who used a Chinese word in class that sounded like a racial slur in English. A beauty YouTuber shedding clothes to 3 million subscribers in a single weekend after a colleague accused him of betrayal and emotional manipulation. He has since recouped those losses and currently claims an audience of more than 23 million. And far-right conspiracists dredging up an anti-Trump filmmaker's old, purely offensive tweets. He was fired by Disney, then rehired eight months later. Once we spoke of call-out culture by the time for simply highlighting individual blunders, Wait, once we spoke of call-out culture, but the time for simply highlighting individual blunders for the edification of a wider audience, as in a medieval morality play, seems to have passed. Those who embrace the idea, if not the precise language of canceling, seek more than pat apologies and retractions, although it's not always clear whether the goal is to right a specific wrong and redress a larger imbalance of power, to wreak vengeance as a way of rendering some justice, however imperfect, to speak out against those existing mechanisms that don't serve us so well after all, to condemn an untrustworthy system and make a plea for a fairer one, or just the blood sport thrill of humiliating a stranger as part of a gleeful, baying crowd. Some prefer the more sober term accountability culture, although this has its own complications, having been heretofore heretofore, (laughs) deployed in the corporate and public sector to support the need for a hierarchy or external authority to hold employees and institutions to their commitments with an eye to boosting results, a measure of productivity, not behavior or values. To say cancel culture, then, is already to express a point of view, implicitly negative. Although cancel culture is not a movement, it has neither leaders nor membership, and those who take part in it do so erratically, maybe only once, and share no coherent ideology. It's persistently attributed to the extremes of a political left and a fear-mongering specter of wokeness, itself a freighted term, originally derived and then distorted from the black vernacular woke, which invokes a spirit of Uh, vigilance to see the world as it really is. The experimental novelist William Melvin Kelly may have been the first to introduce woke to the mainstream as an adjective in his 1962 essay on black idiom, If You're Woke, You Dig It, in which he noted how words change with the color of the people who use them. At one time, the connotations of jive were all good. Now they are bad, or at least questionable. Yet cancellations come just as easily from those aligned in thinking with the far right. Recall recall how, in 2014, a group of video gamers pressured corporations under the guise of championing ethics and journalism to withdraw advertising dollars from media outlets that had criticized lack of diversity in the game industry, and at the same time terrorized female gamers and writers with uh, (laughs) assault and death threats. To some, this very amorphousness is the 
danger, making cancel culture a culture in the microbial sense of a controlling environment, a stifling atmosphere, in the words of a letter on justice and open debate, which appeared in Harper's in July as a call to arms against the perceived new dogmatism without even naming it, signed by 153 academic and artistic luminaries, some of whom themselves have been mobilized against, i.e. canceled, for expressing what the letter characterized somewhat abstractly as good faith disagreement. Many have dismissed this letter, mostly on the grounds of it was ever thus. Cancel culture doesn't exist because it has always existed. In rumors, whispers, and smear campaigns, and censorship and retribution are far worse when sponsored or tacitly sanctioned by the state, as with the imprisonment and kangaroo court convictions of those exercising free speech under totalitarianism, or the blacklisting and barring from employment of suspected communists in the United States in the 1940s and 50s. Hey, they did mention it. A collaborative effort between the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee and an eager-to-please private sector. The speed, sloppiness, and relative anonymity of social media haven't created a radically new strain of bullying. They just facilitate and exacerbate an old one. And some would argue that it's not bullying at all, but the opposite. A means to combat abusive behavior and exploitation of power, and a necessary corrective to the failure of the state to protect its citizens. Left unanswered is what explains the urgent need to not just call out but condemned. The resurgence of ancient beliefs in scapegoating and human sacrifice the shift in American society from guilt to shame, the evolution of a digital form of carnival and misrule as a safety valve to let out all our pent-up rage, and why even as pundits decry cancel culture as a mob running amok, the powers that be somehow remain in place, unchanged. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cancel is a consumerist verb, almost always involving a commodity or transaction. Readers cancel magazine subscriptions, studio heads cancel TV shows, bank tellers cancel checks to show that they've been exhausted of value. The journalist Aja Romano, writing in Vox, tracked down what may be the first popular reference to canceling people, instead of things, in Mario Van Peebles 1991 cult movie New Jack City, when the crime boss Nino Brown slams his girlfriend down on a table. She's protesting his fondness for murder, and sloshes champagne over her, saying, cancel that. <laughs> I'll buy another one. Uh, the rapper, or no, cancel that bitch. I'll buy another one. I should just say it rather than. Uh, so, okay, let's do that again. People's 1991 cult movie, New Jack City, when the crime boss Nino Brown slams his girlfriend down on a table, she's protesting his fondness for murder and sloshes champagne over her, saying, cancel that bitch. I'll buy another one. The rapper 50 Cent reprised Nino's line in his 2005 hit, Hustler's Ambition, and Lil Wayne did the same five years later in I'm Single. As, his informal, as this informal usage entered broader slang, again, like woke and much of contemporary American lexicon taken from black culture, it fused with the more common meaning of the verb and became an imperative to revoke allegiance. In perhaps the earliest instance of cancel culture to include the term, in 2014, the official Twitter account of the Comedy Central show The Colbert Report posted a joke that could be taken as denigration of Asians, and the activist Sui Parker or Sui Park responded with the hashtag cancel Colbert. 
Olita ended up getting doxxed and canceled herself, with so much vitriol directed her way that she fled her home and started communicating with burner phones. In case, The Origins of Our Discontents, 2020, the American journalist Isabel Wilkerson reaches back to the book of Leviticus to examine one of the mechanisms underlying hierarchy and the uh, insistence of exclusion, the scapegoat, or Sa'ir La'az. Laazazel, a literal goat ceremonial endowed by the high priest with all the guilt and misdeeds of the community and driven out into the wilderness. The Greeks practiced a kindred rite using a human sacrifice, the pharmacus, who was beaten and promenaded in the streets before being exiled, which was considered a kind of death. Some historians believe the executions took place the executions took place as well, but others find the evidence inconclusive. This was at once division, uh, diversion and atonement, a way for a dominant group to label an other as evil and cast that evil out, as if it would then no longer abide within them and they could imagine themselves free of blemish, Wilkerson writes. Uh, the modern scapegoat performs an equivalent function, uniting otherwise squabbling groups in enmity against a supposed transgressor who relives the condemners of the or who relieves the condemners of the burden of wrestling with their own wrongs. What is lost, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor argues in a secular age, is the ambivalent, numinous duality of the sacrificial victim. Pharmacos comes from pharmacon, which is both itself and its opposite: medicine and poison at once, healer and killer. My first novel was called Killer and Victim. Hmm. No longer is it acknowledged, however tacitly or subconsciously, that the scapegoat, whether guilty or not of a particular offense, is ultimately a mere stand-in for the true culprits responsible for a society gone askew, ourselves and the system we're complicit in. Instead, the scapegoat is demonized, forced to bear and incarnate everyone's guilt on top of their own. Uh, these expulsions are necessarily public, which is something of a historical regression. When the colonial theocracy of 17th century America gave way to the Enlightenment and democracy, penalties as spectacle, whippings, arms and legs trapped in stockades and pillories, Hester Prynne's Scarlet A, fell out of fashion, and as the British journalist John Ronson notes in So You've Been Publicly Shamed, were largely abandoned as a government-mandated punishment, although they continued in extrajudicial form in the lynchings of black people from re Reconstruction through the 1960s. In keeping with American ideal of self-reliance, citizens were expected to be attuned to their own sense of guilt. The 20th century American anthropologist Ruth Benedict, writing about cultural differences between Japan and the West, distinguished guilt as a legacy of Ju uh, Judaism and Christianity. Suffering from the internal knowledge of having failed to live up to one's own picture of oneself versus shame as the fear of external criticism and ridicule. Guilt guides conduct even in the absence of social sanctions. When nobody knows you've done anything wrong, shame requires an audience, a social network, to force you to change. But guilt still derives from common, uh, communally agreed upon standards, be they manifest as religion, ideology, a legal code, or just the rudimentary ethics uh, without which no group can survive. The increasing atomization of American society in the 21st century has brought an unmooring from such consensus. As standards have shifted, some have grasped for stone only to find a handful of dust. If you can't trust others to follow their conscience or even have one, and you've lost faith in the ability or desire of institutions to uphold what is good, if you no longer believe that we live in a city upon a hill, that our society is just or even aspires to be, there may be no recourse short of revolution, but to scold and menace like modern-day Puritans. 
The act of shaming draws a neat line between good and bad, us and them. Perhaps it's no coincidence that the etymology of cancel leads to the Latin cancelli, derived from cancri, cancer, a lattice or grid of crossbars, a barrier. In other words, linked by dissimulation to carcer, prison, and in its early adaption to English taken literally as a crossing out, lines drawn through words on paper. The sheer arbitrariness of some of the targets of cancel culture, singled out among many who might have committed comparable sins, often neither public figures nor possessors of institutional power, but utterly ordinary people before their swift, simultaneous elevation, uh, elevation degradation to infamy, lends a ritualistic distance to the attacks, enabling a casual cruelty, as in the American writer Shirley Jackson's infamous short story, The Lottery, when the villagers qualmlessly turn on one of their randomly selected own. The Lottery's cool. Uh, it's a short story where it describes this village where everybody gets along and is really kind to each other. And it's kind of this, what in my hometown, it was Canal Days, this fair event that lasted a few days and people like drink and hang out and eat good food and there's games and prizes. But the big thing is this lottery and one person's number is called and everybody's really like excited about the lottery and this person wins and you're like, oh, what did they win? Because it's a lottery, right? In a modern culture, a lottery, when you win, gives you money. But in this case, uh, it's the person that the rest of the community like stones. They just threw stones at them or beat them with stones. And everybody feels this uh, calmness in the aftermath of this sudden eruption of violence. And it's this very like bleak, dystopian story. Uh, the French philosopher René Girard I just wanted to say that with more of an accent and then it didn't come out right. Uh, the French philosopher René Girard in Violence and the Sacred, 1979, notes that the very fact of choosing a victim bestows on him the aura of exteriority. The surrogate victim is not perceived as he really was, namely as a member of the community like all the others. To justify vindictiveness, you can't recognize yourself in those you denounce. You have to believe, as Taylor writes, that they really deserve it. Critics of cancel culture see parallels in the Jacobins, Jacobins of the French Revolution in the 18th century, the Red Guards of the Chinese Cultural Revolution in the, from 1966 to 1976, and the estimated 600,000 to 2 million private citizens out of a population of around 17 million who acted as part-time informants for the Stasi, the East German secret police from 1950 to 1990. None are proper analogies. Uh, analogous for all derived their punitive power from the states. Allusions are also made to the Spanish Inquisition, which persecuted heresy from the 15th century to the 19th century, and the Salem witch trials in the 17th century Massachusetts, both a joint effort of church and states when there was little distinction between them. These examples are relevant only in showing how the archaic use of violence to affirm, affirm purity has evolved to serve latter-day ideologies. In France, the spree of the guillotine was rationalized as the pursuit of good, a reign of terror to yield a republic of virtue. The revolutionary leader Maximilien Rose-Pierre, who famously declared in 1794 that without terror, virtue is impotent, supported the future elimination of the death penalty even as he ordered executions by the thousands. Mao Zedong broidered the same theme in a letter to his wife in 1966, invoking great disorder under heaven in order to achieve great order. And while some Stasi informants may have reported on 
on their friends and neighbors out of fear, researchers have determined that most did so to safeguard the state's righteousness and, by extension, their own. Compared to these authoritarian regimes, however, cancel culture is rudderless, a series of spontaneous disruptions with no sequential logic, lacking any official apparatus to enact or enforce a policy or creed. If anything, it's anti-authoritarian. Historically, Westerners do not approve of informing on behalf of the government and its enforcers, giving the act shaded names like snitch and narc. The latter explicitly defined in an 1859 British slang dictionary as someone who breaks faith. Children are advised not to be tattletales. We're more comfortable with whistleblowers who speak out against the powerful. What cancellations offer instead is a surrogate, warped mirror version of the judicial process, at once chaotic yet ritualized. It's a paradox reminiscent of the mayhem and medieval Catholic traditions of carnival and misrule, wherein the church and governing bodies were lampooned and hierarchy upended, all without actually threatening the prevailing hegemony and even reaffirming it. Misrule always implies the rule that parodies. The American-Canadian anthropologist Natalie Zeman Davis has written, The very excess and occasional destructiveness of the revelries gave testament to the wisdom of those normally in charge. Davis suggests that these festivals offered alternatives to the existing order. But why would the church, which presumably brokered no alternatives, condone such subversion? From its perspective, Carnival was a convenient catharsis, a brief hiatus from the moral strictures of daily life, when the populace was allowed to indulge their mutinous impulses and expend their restive energies, the better to return to compliance on the morrow. It's instructive that, for all the fear that cancel culture elicits, it hasn't succeeded in toppling any major figures. High-level politicians, corporate titans, let alone institutions. Those most vulnerable to harm tend to be individuals previously unknown to the public, like the communications director who was fired in 2013 after tweeting from her personal account an ill-thought-out joke about Africa, AIDS, and her own white privilege. She landed another job six months later or the data analyst who was fired last spring after tweeting in the wake of protests against the death of George Floyd in police custody, a study that suggested that riots depressed rather than increased Democratic Party votes. His employer has denied that the tweet was the cause for his dismissal. Although both situations reveal less about the impact of cancel culture than the precariousness of at-will employment, in which one can be fired for any reason, whether legitimate or not. The more power someone has, the less affected they are. The British writer J.K. Rowling, one of the signatories of the Harper's Letter, has been publicly excoriated in the past year for expressing her views on gender identity and biological sex, but people continue to buy her books. Disgraced high-profile comedians who have returned to the stand-up circuit, not always repentant, have been rewarded with sold-out shows. When the mighty do fall, it often takes years, coupled with behavior that what that's not just immoral, but illegal. The studio head Harvey Weinstein was indicted for crimes, not canceled. In a 1972 conversation with French theorist Michel Foucault, uh, the French philosopher Benny Levy, then using the nom de gloire Pierre Victor, pointed to the example at the end of World War II of those young women whose heads were shaved because they had slept with the Germans, while a number of those who had actively collaborated with the Nazis went unpunished. So the enemy was allowed to exploit these acts of popular justice, not the old enemy, the Nazi occupation forces, but the new enemy, the French bourgeois. 
Uh, in keeping a narrow focus on small-scale violations of the social contract, cancel culture has uncomfortable kinship, as the American essayist Megan Dom has written, to the broken windows policing put into practice starting in the 1980s, based on a theory by American criminologists George L. Kelling and James Q. Wilson that posited that cracking down on minor crimes would prevent larger ones. Instead, it led to a scourge of stop and frisk in which ordinary people, innocent of crime and disproportionately of color, were routinely and repeatedly treated like suspects and searched, manhandled, and interrogated as such. The, tres uh, the trespasses cited in cancel culture often do encapsulate a and typify greater ills, as when a white woman called the police on a black birder in Central Park last spring and falsely claimed that he was threatening her. Holding these acts up as evidence of the dailiness of iniquity might be revelatory for some and even budge the needle on how people think of racism, misogyny, and class oppression in America today. As the British sociologist Stanley Cohen wrote, when crowds muster against perceived threats to public mores and what we call a moral panic, those threats, while exaggerated, are still potent as warning signs of the real much deeper and more prevalent condition. But moral panics were traditionally engineered by those in power to reassert the need for modes of control, or by commercial interest to profit off the attention that comes via scandal. They were forms of manipulation, diverting public ire from structural injustice toward a specific ostracized group as an embodiment of evil or, or folk devils, a coinage by Cohen in the late 1960s. Fear of cancel culture is itself a moral panic, a moral panic over moral panics, one orchestrated on high over those generated ex tempore below. Although in cancel culture, the moral panics are roving and unpremeditated, they can still be exploited for the benefit of the dominant class. So long as the folk devils of cancel culture are plucked from the masses or are merely artsy celebrities or subalterns of politics or industry, the world stays essentially the same. Cancel culture may have reached its apotheosis this September when a professor of history and African studies at George Washington University admitted online that she was white, not black, as she had been posting, opposing for her entire career. You should absolutely cancel me, and I absolutely cancel myself, she declared, but then added, what does that mean? I don't know, nullifying the entire premise. Self-abasement was tendered, but no concrete action. She affirmed the importance of cancel culture as a necessary and righteous tool for those with less structural power to wield against those with more power, yet insisted, I can't fix this, as if she could embrace accountability without actually doing anything to alter her actions, as if she had no power to remove herself from power. Only after the university began investigating her public statement did she resign from her tenure position, nearly a week later. On Twitter, people uh, speak scoffingly of canceling themselves as a joke or a preemptive measure since presumably any of us could be canceled at any time, living in our glass Instagrams, leaving a spore of digitized gaffes behind us. The Canadian media theorist Marshall McLuhan uh, eerily anticipated cancel culture in his 1967 book, The Medium is the Message. The title was the typesetter's error that McLuhan embraced. Uh, expressing concern before the first resource-sharing computer network was even completed about the womb-to-tomb surveillance made possible by the electric, uh, electrically computerized dossier bank, that one big gossip column that is unforgiving, unforgetful, and from which there is no redemption, no erasure of early mistakes. 
There's the tacit hope that if we have the grace to cancel ourselves first, our ostracism will be temporary, a mere vacation from social media. Absolution is reduced to performance, a walk with bowed head through jeers and splatter mud. Instead of retreating into introspection and actually examining our behavior, we submit to punishment and imagine ourselves thereby purged of both sin and the need to do anything about it. We emerge clean, or so we let ourselves believe. But what is the point of all this flagellation, of self and others, if meanwhile the structures that enable wrongdoing continue to creak and loom, doing business as usual? The scapegoat was not always a marginal figure. Consider Oedipus, the tyrannous pharmacos of the Thebes, an unknowing sinner whose crimes brought great suffering to his people blighted crops, plague, and who had to be sacrificed that they might live. This specter of the sovereign laid low appears to haunt the American entrepreneur and venture capitalist Peter Thiel, who in his 2014 treaty slash self-help manual Zero to One, co-written by Blake Masters, casts a glance at the restive hordes below. Perhaps every modern king is just a scapegoat who has managed to delay his own execution. Although it's worth noting that today's uh, potentitasis rule unhindered by the bygone fetters of interfering gods and binding prophecies. Wow. Uh, there was a time when we lived in a moral economy, which is to say an economy that acknowledged, if not always observed, moral concerns. The British social historian E.P. Thompson used the term as a framework for understanding food riots in 18th century England, when in times of dearth, people set sights on profiteers and organized what he described as a kind of ritualized hooting or groaning outside shops to make their displeasure known. Today we hoot and groan still, but seemingly everywhere and at everything, so that even the worthiest and most urgent causes get lost in the clamor. The many subcultures whose complaints buoy the larger nebulous cancel culture tend to fixate on minutia, which can distract from attempts to achieve broader change. And this may be intentional distraction. Every obsessive search on Google for proof of wrongdoing, every angry post on Twitter and Facebook to call the guilty to account is a silent ka-ching in the great repositories of these corporations, which woo advertisers by pointing to the intensity of user engagement. Despite the egalitarianism uh, claimed for social media by the capital's libidinal engineers, this is currently an enemy territory dedicated to the reproduction of capital. The British cultural critic Mark Fisher wrote in his 2013 essay, Exiting the Vampire's Castle. Twitter cancel culture's main arena is not the digital equivalent of the public square, however touted as such. We think of it as an open space because we pay no admission, forgetting that it's a commercial enterprise committed to hurting us in. We are customers, but also uncredited workers doing the free labor of making the platform more valuable. For now, this is the circus that states uh, that sates us, that keeps us from waking to the truth of our life and turning, glowering, uh, glowering? Yeah, glowering toward the barred gates. We burn our effigies, forgetting that they're actual people like us, as our overlords look on from afar, brows knitted but not quite worried, not yet. Still, these modern kings would do well to remember, and Sophocles telling Oedipus doesn't run from his fate. He begs for exile to heal his people. He cancels himself. So, a long, long, long discussion of cancel culture. <laughs> um, for those of you still watching, cheers. You know, you are wonderful. And that's it for this video. Until next time, stay wavy and keep it loopy. Cheers. 
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.